0: So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to just read a few scenes out of this. It's a very long chapter, and then we're going to just have three kind of things we're going to focus on out of this quickly. First, chapter 8 and verse 10 to uh, 13, (coughs) or 10 to 21, actually. We'll break that up into two sections. When the priests came out of the holy place, they'd just taken the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel." Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then we'll skip down to verse 33. And read to verse 34. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land and there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people of Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive an act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave, your father, gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to just take kind of three, three scenes out of this and three titles. The temple hosts God's presence is the first one. The second, the temple demonstrates God's faithfulness, and then thirdly, the temple depicts God's forgiveness. It's worship that is felt, it is a remembrance, and it is an experience. The temple hosts God's presence. In verse 8 to 13, we, we read that there's kind of a deja vu moment here, if we, if if you've been kind of tracking with us. We, we got to the end of the book of Exodus when Moses create, uh, is is finished building the tabernacle and that took up almost all of the, you know, the last half of the book of Exodus. I think it's like, it's the longest narrative in the whole Pentateuch. It's that big a deal. The author spends more time on the building of the tabernacle than on creation. It's that important. It's the central theme of the Pentateuch. God's presence with his people. Exodus ends with the completion of the tabernacle and the descent of God's presence from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle in a thick cloud of God's glory. And this symbolizes the manifest presence of God in that place. God's presence makes it so no one can be in the temple. Now, Obviously, this is a temporary and initiatory event that wasn't repeated from that time on. Otherwise, the priests wouldn't be able to go in and do their job. And they did. Daily from that point on. But from cover to cover, from creation to new creation, this is the central theme of Scripture. God is committed to dwelling with His people. The temple hosts God's presence with His people, but God doesn't necessarily live in a temple. As the prayer even said, hear from heaven your dwelling place. He lives other, He is not restricted to a place. But God is committed to dwelling with his people, to be present with them. The temple of Solomon with all the symbolism, if you go back the, the, the chapters before this, the, the, the things that were carved into it and the, the, the trees and the fruit and the, the animals and the materials used in its construction, it's a picture of Eden restored, a place of where, where humanity and creator live together, work together, rest together. And this is the final picture of what is yet to come. The temple descending from heaven to earth, the abiding place of God coming to be with us. Listen to this, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. The first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and, he will, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Three times, look at that in verse 3, three times underline the word with. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. God Himself will be with them. Sometimes we go over those really common, ordinary, everyday connecting words, but it's the really important word here with. Present with His people. A lot of people think that the promise of heaven is a time to be reunited with loved ones and there's a beautiful truth to that. But Revelation 21 is completely silent on this. John doesn't see the other apostles already martyred for their faith. John doesn't talk about getting uh, seeing a vision of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus whom he cared for in her old age until she died. John doesn't identify anyone other than Jesus Christ in the glory of God in his vision. His vision and his heart and his worship are completely taken up with the vision of God's presence with his people. This is the one reality put forward that is ultimately beautiful and hopeful and fulfilling and marvelous. The full presence of God with his people. But it's not distant, impersonal, or just spiritual Remember, this is, this is the new heaven coming to earth. The temple is coming from heaven to earth. Not the other way around. And it's not distant and it's not impersonal. The reality that, it's a reality that reaches out and removes and heals our deepest pains. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you can't do that without physically touching someone. You can't do it without caring about the pain in people's lives. He himself, God who comes to dwell with his people, is the one who takes your tears. This is so marvelous. The presence of God always elicits a response of fear and trembling. When we encounter the holy presence of God, there's emotional, visceral reaction. Why is that? You know, I used to think that it was simply because of the shame of sin in the presence of holiness, but I think it is far more than that. I think that the fear and trembling in the presence of God comes because when we are in the presence of God, our real brokenness is revealed and we don't have anywhere to hide. And at the very same time, we are met with a love and a welcome that we never dreamed possible. And I think when it comes right down to it, this is just the overwhelming combination. The depth of our brokenness is so real, but the depth of his love for us at the same time is so real. And they come together in that moment in God's presence, and we are undone. Happened to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. I think when it comes right down to it, there's, we would rather God stayed in heaven. We're more terrified and undone because of God's love for us than his wrath against sin. I think that's what really elicits the, the response that, that he would choose to be with us. See, I think deep down most of us are a lot more comfortable with a God of wrath who keeps his distance and gives us rules to follow. Maybe we can do enough to keep Dad happy. We're more comfortable with that than a God of love who comes down close enough to us to wipe away our tears. A lot of us... Prefer a God who points the finger rather than the God who embraces us in a hug. The reason God's presence unnerves us is that when we truly encounter God, we discover how deeply wounded and yet how radically loved we are at the same time. And that is more terrifying than anything. But it's really the only way that God's presence can be experienced. This is what people experienced when they met Jesus Christ during his time on earth. Just think of the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, the blind man, the lame, the crippled, the lepers, the tax collectors, the sinners. They meet Jesus and they, and they are undone. They meet Jesus and discover the depths of their wounds and their sins. And at the same moment, they experience the wonder of his love and his care and his restoration and his healing. Just contrast in Luke chapter 7. Verses 36 to the end of the chapter, there Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee, and there's this woman that comes in weeping at his feet and, and wiping his, washing his feet with her hair. The Pharisee is completely unmoved by Jesus' presence. He's like, who is this? Idiot, doesn't even know what this woman is. But this woman is completely undone in the presence of Jesus. Religious ruler knows his Bible, completely unmoved by Jesus. Sinful woman, completely undone. Read the Gospels in this light. You'll see it on every single page. God's presence fills the temple in Kings because God is committed to being present with his people. Joseph is told that Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us. And in the end of the book of Matthew, he says, I'm going to be with you always. The temple hosts God's presence because God is committed to being present with his people. Second, the temple declares God's faithfulness to his people. In verses 14 to 21, Solomon goes on a bit of a history lesson here. He declares the faithfulness of God. God has been committed to his people since he called Abraham. The covenant with Abraham and Moses, with David, and to the people of Israel. And he's followed through. The Lord has fulfilled his promises that he has made, verse 20. He is faithful. Solomon reminds the people that God's purposes and God's word are trustworthy and true. It's taken a long time since the exodus from Egypt. Actually, I, uh, I, I didn't really... Get all the dates down, but really this this comes midway from the Exodus to the dedication of the temple, from the dedication of the temple to the exile. This is midpoint. Solomon reminds the people that God's purposes and God's word are trustworthy and true. The African Bible commentary says, says this: knowing that the God, knowing that God always does what He says is very reassuring. He will remain faithful even when we, no longer, we are no longer on earth and unable to witness the accomplishments of his promises. This is so important for us to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness because we easily forget. Amid the pressures and the present pains of life, those things sometimes push us, push us away from what we know of God to be true in our minds and we get overwhelmed with life. But throughout scriptures, there's this constant reminder of the past. Therefore, events like the Sabbath weekly, the Passover annually, the feasts, the rhythms of life remind us that God is involved in our lives every day. And that's why the Lord's table is something we need to do regularly. To just remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And when he said it is finished, he meant it. The completion of the temple on Solomon's day was a reminder to Israel that God always keeps his promises. But the temple was also another gracious sign of God's willingness to forgive. And that's the third thing. The temple depicts God's forgiveness for his people. If we were to expand this and just kind of read the the whole chapter, we would hear this phrase repeated seven times, then hear from heaven, then hear from heaven, Throughout this prayer, Solomon is pointing to the sins of the people, the difficulties and the threats in life they will face, and he is pointing the people to return to God in repentance and trust wherever they find themselves, because God will forgive and restore. The phrase literally reads, then you yourself will hear from heaven. It's emphatic. The you comes first in the sentence. We, we, the, the ESV didn't put you in there. But then you yourself hear from heaven. It's a prayer. The prayer covers a number of situations people will face. Sin against their neighbor, the defeat and exile, drought, famine, plague. And here is an invitation to foreigners also to come and find a place in the kingdom. Whatever circumstances people find themselves, they can pray, and God will hear. Again, remember who's reading this text. Yes, Solomon's praying it. But this text is written to exiles in Babylon. Here is a prayer of hope. Bring them again to the land you gave their fathers. If your people go to battle against an enemy in verse 44, and we could keep reading 46 to 50, really kind of the very last section of this prayer talks about people in exile and how they can find hope. And here's what I want us to take away today. No matter how far our sin may carry us from God's presence, there's always a way home. Verse 48 says, if they repent with all their heart and all their soul and pray to you, then hear from heaven, forgive their sins, restore them. Go back to verse 38. Let this sink in. Each person knowing the affliction of his own heart. Knowing the affliction of his own heart. So the requirement for repentance is this, to know the brokenness of our own heart and to turn to God in repentance with all your heart, with all your soul, because God hears and God will forgive and God will act. Again, verse 38 to 39, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place forgive and act and render each render to each whose heart you know according to his all his ways for you you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind god already knows what's afflicting your heart so are you willing to admit what is deeply going on inside your heart and the brokenness that you are carrying the disease you are feeling in life because God knows it's there. And he will never, ever be shocked at what's going on in your heart. He wants you to stop denying that reality and admit it to yourself and come to him. Over and over in 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays for God's people that in their sin and in their distress and in whatever circumstances they find themselves in, far from God, that they would turn their faces towards God his presence, to pray, to cry out, to repent, and to realign their hearts with the truth of God's faithfulness and His forgiveness, and that they would find restoration and renewal when they turn their hearts to God. The presence of God filled the temple with glory. This powerfully reminds us that God's purpose is to live with His people, to be in community with us. The temple building and dedication in 1 Kings 8 grounds us in the very heart of God for us, and we can draw near to Him in full confidence because of His unending love for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you know the depths of our hearts. So, Lord, may we come to your presence knowing that it will undo us because you love us so much. Lord, may we come to you because your faithfulness grounds us in the reality and hope that is only found in you. And Lord, for whatever sins that we are struggling with or allowing in our lives, may we turn to you in full repentance with all our hearts and minds and souls and find your forgiveness, your restoration. Lord, thank you that you, above all, you desire to be with your people. And ultimately, that is your one goal, from cover to cover, to be with us. Thank you that you constantly pursue us and that you make a way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.